Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bonjour, bienvenue la série de sermons de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Please check it out. God bless you and take care. Good morning. It's golf weather out there. <laughs> I've been, Pastor says he's going to let the devil use you. <laughs> As we continue on the life of Moses, we come to the Ten Commandments. And so I just want to read three verses. From Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The Old Testament insists on one great truth. And that is there is only one God, maker and creator of all things. Everything else that calls itself God is an imposter. And there are plenty of imposters around, if you haven't noticed. In Moses' day and throughout the Old Testament history, there was Baal. Baal was not really any single god. The word Baal means Lord. And among the peoples which Israel came in contact with, they ran into many Baals or many lords. There were many gods out there. Baal worship was dangerous, however, and it had certain universal traits. In the name of Baal, children were thrown into furnaces as a burnt offering. Child sacrifice was common. It was one of the reasons why God hates idolatry. He saw little kids being burned alive. In the name of Baal, thousands were killed in needless wars. In the name of Baal, thousands of women became prostitutes. That's because Baal is a fertility god. And the way you worship Baal besides sacrificing kids or making sacrifices to a fertility god is you went to the worship services and there were women there waiting for you and you engaged in relations in order to increase the fertility of the land. Fertility gods basically were all they worshiped back then, by the way. If you wanted more sheep, you wanted more goats, you wanted more cows, you wanted more children, you wanted more crops, you went and worshiped Baal. The people who worshiped Baal, by the way, lived in constant fear. They believed their gods were totally unpredictable and immoral. You could never tell when Baal, out of a whim, would destroy your crops or take one of your children. The Baals were cruel and arbitrary and who used people as playthings. Why Israel would give up on the real God for these other imposters really is difficult to understand. You know what's ironic? The gods, the lords, the masters, 
men create for themselves are always much harder to live with than the real God. You know, you would think if we made up our own gods, we'd go easier on ourselves. We don't. We're much harder on ourselves. That's why God said, you shall have no other gods before me. God gave this command because he realizes what bales, our bales, do to us, what our idols do to us. You see, bale or an idol is anything that controls us other than the real God. Bales are that which we build our lives around, our security around, our life's meaning around. Idols can be anything bad like cocaine or alcohol or some sort of addiction. But idols can also be anything good, which takes center place in our hearts and dominates our lives. Idolatry at its worst destroys human life. That's what the Baals did. Idolatry at its best simply trivializes it. In our time, idols have changed names and faces, but we have plenty of idols around here, don't we? There's the God, you know, our, we tend to worship all kinds of things, technology and, and violence and materialism, for instance. By the way, have you noticed we have, for materialism, we have all kinds of worship centers across this nation, Macy's and Sears and uh, never mind. Never has a, had a nation had more wealth and simultaneously had more discontent. You know why? Because bales disappoint you. They make promises they can't keep. They keep doing what they, they say they're going to do something, but they, they don't do it. I'll give you a parable of contentment by a Christian writer. He said, once there was a young girl whose parents who took her to the shrine of the golden arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that somehow, in a fit of marketing genius, they called the Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I can live without it. How many parents here have heard that? No, her parents told her. The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she said. She knew that they would not just be buying fries and McNuggets and, and a dinosaur stamp. This was about buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a happy meal. So she explained, I want that happy meal more than I've wanted anything ever before in my life. And if I get it, I'll never, ever ask for anything again. Many parents are going, you hear that? <laughs> no more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. This seemed like a pretty good deal to the parents, so they bought it. And here's the miracle. It worked. She grew up a contented, grateful, joyful woman because of the Happy Meal. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse. Her kids turned out to be crummy kids. She got poor when she was old, but she never complained. Why? Because she had eaten that happy meal in childhood. Often when things got hard, she would go, I remember that happy meal. What great joy I found there. 
Just as she predicted as a little girl, it brought her lasting joy. And she was grateful the rest of her life. Does it ever work that way? Does that sound realistic? By the way, by the way, you can never have eternal happiness from anything from McDonald's. Everybody knows if you want to be truly happy, it's a Whopper with cheese. <laughs> with a chocolate shake. You would think after a while children would catch on, don't you? You know, uh, you, you'd think they'd say, you know, a happy meal never brings lasting happiness. I'm not going to get suckered into this again. But guess what? It happens over and over and over. And when the excitement wears off, guess what? We need a new Happy Meal fix. Or a new car. Or a new house. Or a new career. Or a new addiction. Or a new spouse. And you would think after a while we would catch on and go, wait a minute. These things don't fill us up. But we keep getting suckered. In fact, the only one Happy Meals brings real happiness to that I've seen is the owner of McDonald's. Do you ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time, that crazy-looking clown? Billions of Happy Meals sold. Of course, only a child would be so naive. Who would be foolish enough to believe that if you have this little trinket or that little trinket or this thing, that eternal happiness is yours. Who would believe that? That's why God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't settle for the lies of this world. Don't settle for the bales that we make up ourselves that cannot keep their promises because they at best will disappoint, they will leave you empty, and many of them will leave you dead. Don't settle for them. The God of Israel says, no other person knows you like I know you, loves you like I love you, will care for you like I will care for you. The gods we create for ourselves are lousy. They're mean and they're stupid and they're... Why do we do that? When Jehovah God says he's a jealous God in the next verse that I didn't read, it's not out of some neurotic need to dominate and possess people. It's not a... a, a out of a jealousy that comes out of insecurity and fear. God is not insecure. He is not fearful. God is not really jealous of us. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for our well-being. He's jealous that we live life at its highest level. He's jealous that we do not settle for trash. The, God man, the, the gods man creates for himself are terrible taskmasters. You know, one of the great myths I think should, that should be settled forever is the myth of humanism as it took place in the great experiment called communism. Remember communism that said there is no God, there's only human beings, human beings are good and we will create a system on our own as human beings that will create utopia. We will, if we just follow Karl Marx and Lenin and all those guys, everything will be perfect. And do you remember what happened? This belief created monsters. Between Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and all these, these guys killed 70 million of their own people. Of their own, I'm not talking about wars, I'm talking about them just slaughtering their own citizens. 
You know what? We should have learned from humanism when, when humans worship humans. When human beings worship human beings, then God help human beings. When we make ourselves God, we suffer. We suffer. Remember the prophets of Baal? In order to get Baal to, to listen to their prayers, they began to physically mutilate themselves. It says, you know, as was their custom. They thought they had to rip themselves to shred in order for Baal to see how humble and sincere they were. One of the hallmarks of idolatry is the belief that in order for Baal to feel good about himself, we must feel bad about ourselves. And this is not representative of the real God. Although I know people who impose this on the real God. You know, even Israel in Exodus 5, Lynn Taylor you know, shared with me, remember when they were going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, and, one, and they threw in something God never told them. They threw in the, they said, and if you don't let us go, God will smite us. God will send plagues on us. God never said any such thing. What was happening? They were projecting onto God their own fears. We do that all the time. I have good news for you this morning. We don't have to trash ourselves in order for God to feel good about himself. We don't have to mutilate ourselves or cut up our self-worth or hate ourselves in order for God to love us. The God of Israel and the God of Baal are nothing alike. But it brings us back to idolatry. Why, why do we have to keep fighting idols? I think Rebecca Manley Pippert has it right when she says that all of us, in effect, worship something or someone. Every person on this planet worships something or someone. Do you understand that? All of us are controlled by something. All of us have a master, every person here, or masters. And the real goal of life is to find the best master. Why should Jesus be our master? Because he is the only person in the universe who can control us without destroying us. Every other Baal will kill you or warp you or diminish your life. We live in a world that worships all kinds of Baal. There's the Baals of pleasure. Oh, my goodness. Look at the death toll from worshiping the God, the Baal of pleasure. How many people have died from cocaine? How many people have died from heroin? How many people have died from alcohol? How many people have died from nicotine? We worship the Baal of pleasure. It's all around us. They don't look so primitive back then now, do they? And of course, oh my goodness, the God of sex. Oh my goodness, how many people have died of AIDS? How many people have STDs that will never leave their bodies? How many people have thrown themselves into poverty and to all kinds of pain because they worship the Baal of sex? And of course, there's money too. You know, I've watched people in the name of making money for their families, destroy their families. 
They turned into workaholics. They were never home. Their kids became, an, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring you kids to show you how much I love you by going out and making all kinds of money for you. All other masters but Christ will fail you. They will trivialize your existence. They may well destroy you. Only Christ knows us totally and loves us totally and is for us totally. No one else or nothing else can make that claim. He is our best master, hands down. And yet, we continue to deify ourselves. And you know how I know we continue to have bales and false gods? You know, in one study with, among North American Christians, they asked them, on a day-to-day basis as you make your decisions, how much of your decision-making is based on asking God for help or thinking through your Christian values when you make the decision? 99% of the Christians asked said in their everyday decision-making, their spiritual selves had nothing to do with the decisions they made. My question then is, who's running the show? (laughs) What Baal is in charge? What God is running? What master is running you if it's not the real God? Most people, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, we go, yes, of course. I go along with that up to a point. (laughs) But let's not go crazy with this surrender stuff. The majority of North American Christians are like my son Zach was years ago. I think Zach wanted a happy meal years ago. And he came up to me and he said, Dad, I'll do anything if you'll give me this. And I said, anything, Zach? And he said, yes, I'll do anything except what I don't want to do. That's the way a lot of us are with God. Am I correct? I'll do anything except what I don't want to do. Otherwise, I'm yours. By the way, I said no to Zach on those terms because I love him. And if I kept saying yes on those terms, it would have ruined him. I did him a favor by saying no. God does a lot of us favors by saying no. The key to a full Christian life is no less than to accept God's complete control for my life. A term that is used in Christian circles is surrender. Surrender is when I shift from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. It comes when I say to Christ, Jesus, I give you the right to work in any area in my life. No relationship, no ambition, no life goal, no attitude, no aspect of my life will be withheld from you. All of me is yours. By the way, if you don't say that, rest assured a bale or bales will show up because nature abhors a vacuum. If you don't let the real God be in charge, I promise you some false God is going to show up and take over. For the surrendered person, every major decision or relationship centers around the question, what does God want? In this situation, what does God value through his word in my life? Where is his spirit leading? It's that simple. Or Jesus made it even more simple. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. All these other things. Isn't that? We go, seek ye first all these other things, and maybe we'll add God later. 
Jesus is telling us, build your life around God and his will and his values. Because if God is at the center of things, everything else needed will follow. Our life will be taken care of by a God who loves us more than we can imagine. And if God is not at the center of our lives, nothing can be right about our lives. That's why this commandment is first in the list of ten. God does not say, don't steal, don't kill. Oh, and by the way, at the end, you shall have no other gods before me. He puts that one number one because if that one isn't taken care of, you forget the other nine. There shall be no other gods. The real question this morning is, are we going to get a little help from God to live our lives? He's going to be that big 911 crisis intervention number in the sky? Or are we going to surrender the whole show, our entire life? Are we willing to let him be in control, or are we just going to dabble with real spirituality? Are we going to seek the kingdom first, or are we not? Are we going to let God be God? Or are we not? That is the question for every Christian. It is the question for every person trying to follow God. If you do not do the first commandment, Christianity simply becomes a waste of time. There shall be no other gods. Jack Hayford was on a plane ride. He, they, he had gone to, they, somebody had paid for him to go to preach somewhere, and they bought him a first-class ticket. And when he got into first class, something disturbed him. When he tried to put, you know, his, his stuff in the overhead uh, storage space, it was full. All of them were full in first class, and there weren't that many people in first class. He realized at that moment a travesty had taken place, that the people getting on the plane who weren't in first class were putting their luggage in first class overhead luggage. This upset him. He said, I'm going to write the airline." He said, I'm going to start a national movement. But he said, before I started to write, it suddenly occurred to me that I was presuming that the flight attendant had filled up the front compartment before the back was used. Maybe by some fluke of circumstance, the back compartment had been filled up and she'd been forced to use the first class compartment. To make an honest claim, he said, I decided to find out. I had to be sure of my righteous indignation. He said, I started to get up from my seat going to the rear of the plane to check out the possibility when it happened. you got to watch out, because if you're following Jesus, this will happen a lot. He said, when I started to the back of the plane, the Lord spoke to me. And he spoke to me by a whisper of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this often happens when I'm about to do something stupid. The plane still hadn't taken off, but he said, just as I rose, I heard God's still small voice. And the still small voice said, let it go. Let it go. He said, I wish I could tell you that I obeyed. Instead, I got out of my seat and started down the aisle. He said, there's no way in the world I could have known, but about two-thirds of the way to the back of the plane, sitting in the aisle seat, was a four-year-old little boy. I didn't see him, so I didn't know what he was up to, but he just finished drawing a picture with a felt-tip pen, and then he leaned across the aisle to show his mother what he'd drawn, and in one hand was his picture, and in the other hand was the felt-tip pen with the top off. And he said, just as I walked by, he said, that felt-tip pen went right across the front of my light-colored slacks. He said, do you get the picture? I was going back to gather information to write a letter to the president of the airline. 
when the God of the universe took the hand of a four-year-old boy and wrote a letter to me on my slacks that said, let it go. Instead of turning back, he thought, well, since I've come this far, I might as well finish. He said, I took about four steps, and I met one of the flight attendants who was trying to unlatch something on one of the soft drink serving carts, and he said, just as I got there, a latch broke, and this avalanche of cans and plastic water bottles and all kinds of stuff just started flying at my feet, and he said, I was dancing up and dodging up and down the aisle. And he said, I started to think, there's a Jonah on this plane God's after, and it's me. He said, message number three came through. Hayford, go sit down. He said, but I forged ahead. <laughs> Propelled by one thought. I've got to know. Is the back compartment full? Or did that flight attendant insensitively and irresponsibly give away my space? He said, and I got there, and guess what? It was empty. She was guilty. I was right. He said, but something happened at that point. He said, suddenly my victory didn't feel like victory anymore. He said, I felt kind of empty. I was tired. He said, my grudge had suddenly become heavy. This small thing had become too big. I had started with a complaint against the flight attendant, built it to airline president proportions, compounded it by dulling my ear to the voice of the Lord, paid for it with a pair of ruined slacks, and punctuated it all with a waltz through a fleet of flying cans of soda. And he said, suddenly my bag hanging in the back of that plane became big baggage to my soul. He said, I needed to unload. He said, I started apologizing to God as fast as I could. He said, I knew I'd been corrected by the head corrector. You know what the Holy Spirit is saying to some of us this morning? He's saying the same thing he said to Jack Hayford on that plane. Let it go. That grudge you got, that anger you're toting around, let it go. You know, that bail you're building your life around, that thing that keeps dragging you down, you're worried about it, you, you know, you just let it go. That thing that is dominating your life, give it to the real God and see if he can't handle it better than you handle it. Let it go. I want to tell you a little secret about surrender before I leave this sermon. A lot of us think that surrender is a once-in-a-lifetime thing or that it's something that happens in church and automatically is carried out. A lot of us think that surrender takes place on the mountain. I've got news for you. Surrender takes place in the valley. And it takes place in the ordinary. And it takes place one little thing after another in normal life, day after day. It takes place... If you want to know where real surrender takes place, it takes place when you start to leave first class and head to the back of the plane. It starts in the living room when you're arguing with your wife. It starts on the job when you want to spread that gossip. It starts when you're losing your temper with your kids. It starts when you see your neighbor in need and you don't want to do anything about it because you're tired. 
It starts habitually in everyday life. Brother Lawrence learned the secret of surrender and how to submit to the presence of Christ. He changed the world with his discovery. He learned how to practice the presence of God, to celebrate the presence of God in anything he did. His lessons are still being learned today. Where did he learn these lessons of surrender? Among pots and pans and preparing food in an obscure monastery. He learned the secret of spiritual life in a kitchen. In the ordinary, we all do. How do you do it? You invite the Spirit and learn to listen to the Spirit and submit to to the Spirit day after day, life situation after life situation, moment by moment. You cannot make a surrender for all time. You can agree in principle that you want to surrender for all time, but where it becomes habitual and real is in everyday life in the small stuff. In the small stuff. God says, give it all to me. Dabbling won't do it. Dabbling simply means something else is controlling your life. No no God human beings create in their mind can possibly be as good or as loving or as kind or as patient or as caring as the real God. You will never run into anybody better than Jesus Christ. You will never run into anybody that loves you more than the Father in heaven. You will never be more comforted than by the Comforter himself. When God said, you shall have no other gods before me, he was saying, I want to be your God. I want to heal you, save you, guide you, free you, cleanse you, love you, make you whole. And I'm the best one for the job. There's no one else that can do it. Like Andre Crouch wrote. I remember years ago in Huntsville, Alabama, where Andre Crouch, you know, back in the 70s, he came to town. And Kim and I, would, we went to two of his concerts, and oh, my goodness, We were melted by the presence of God. And I love that one song. I've never got over it. Can't nobody, can't nobody do me like Jesus. Can't nobody do me like the Lord. He healed my body, and he told me to run on. (laughs) And the song just goes down of miracle after miracle, praise after praise. I'm here to tell you today, can't nobody do you like Jesus. That's why you shall have no other gods, because nothing or no one can compare to the real one. Hallelujah. You can say amen to that. I want the servers for communion to go and gather themselves. We're going to have communion today. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares and let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion 
of the Holy Spirit. Today, we are taking communion in our seats. We ask you to hold the elements until we all can partake together as a sign of our unity in one body. And if you have allergies to gluten in the plates that are passed, there will be a little plastic bag with gluten-free bread. Please feel free to take that if you need it. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for surrendering your life totally to the will of the Father and in love to us. You gave everything, Lord. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let us do our response, responsive reading. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. Thank you, Lord. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Pastor Hank is going to lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood, freely, wonderfully, lovingly given for us. We thank you for the reminder this morning that the blood that flowed on Calvary's tree matters even more than the blood that flows in our veins. Let it be a reminder and a call for us to live life surrender to you, not just in a pledge and a decision, but in our everyday scenes, in our everyday actions, in our everyday words. In your name we pray. Amen.
us read the responsive reading. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. This time, Randy Miller is going to lead us in a final hymn. I'd like you to stand. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. We will pray for you about anything that you would like prayer for. So, um, Randy, do we have, uh, can't nobody do me like Jesus in that hymn book? No, we do not. Uh, okay, well. But I got a better one. Okay. <laughs> How great thou art. Okay. <laughs>
Praise the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray you cast out all the bales. We pray you destroy all the idols. We pray there is no other God before you in our hearts and in our lives. Lord Jesus, set us free from every chain that binds, from every lie that confounds. Set us free from all the, the things that bales do to us. Set us free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Send us in your blessing now. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.